Hello and welcome back to the Ruby Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 53 on AFI's top 100 list. That is 1978's The Deer Hunter. The Deer Hunter. Starring, of course, Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. Cannot miss, of course, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, another one of my many girlfriends. Yeah, your repeat girlfriend, in fact. We've seen her before, Sophie's Choice. Yes. And she's always a delight. Always. Ethan, I want to get some of your impressions just up front. This is almost halfway. Two more films. We've reached the midpoint of this list. So (laughs) what are you thinking? I will compare this to the last time I read a Faulkner novel. And after both watching this film and reading Absalom, Absalom, I need a shower and I don't want to see them again anytime soon. (laughs) That's an interesting point you made because one of the reviews I read about this film when I was looking to get some additional context compared it to Hemingway. I can see that. Well, before we get too much further into it, why don't we get a plot synopsis? The Deer Hunter is the story of friends Mike, Stephen, and Nick, blue-collar workers in Pennsylvania in the late 60s who are preparing to go to Vietnam. The film opens on the day of Stephen's wedding and shortly before the three will leave for Vietnam. At the wedding, it becomes clear that Mike is in love with Nick's girlfriend, Linda. The reception is held at the local VFW where the men at some point meet a Green Beret who responds to their inquiries about Vietnam by saying, fuck it. Linda catches the bouquet. Nick asks her to marry him. She agrees. Mike strips down naked after the reception and runs through town. After Nick catches him, Mike implores him not to leave him over there in Nam. The next day, the men and some of their other friends go deer hunting one last time. Mike kills a large buck. In Vietnam, the men make it through a terrible fight but find themselves prisoners of war. They are forced to play Russian roulette for the enemy soldiers' enjoyment. Stephen, forced to play, cocks the gun upward the last second and avoids killing himself. He's punished for that. Mike then devises a plan to escape by tricking the enemies into giving him three bullets in the game of Russian Roulette uh, that he will play against Nick. He eventually shoots the men, and the three escape down the river. They're picked up by a helicopter, but Mike and Steven don't quite make it on, and Steven's legs are terribly injured. Mike carries Steven to safety, and later, Nick goes AWOL after recuperating in a hospital. He finds his way into a red light district and meets Grinda, a man who runs a illicit gambling Russian roulette league. Nick disrupts the match that he walks in on by pulling the trigger on his opponent and on himself. He then escapes the maelstrom of insanity with Grinda as Mike, who is there in the room, attempts to chase him down. Mike eventually makes it back to the U.S. and avoids his welcome party. He finds that Stephen has been in the local VA hospital where he's learning to live without his legs. He's not doing so hot. Mike then goes hunting with his old friends again and finds himself unable to kill a large buck he's been tracking. After visiting Stephen in the hospital, he discovers someone has been sending large amounts of cash 
to him from Saigon. He makes Stephen go home and heads back to Saigon just before its fall in 75. He, with the help of Grinda, hunts down Nick, who has been playing Russian roulette in these illicit gambling leagues, and is clearly unstable. He begs him to come back to the U.S. with him, but Nick makes him play Russian roulette with him again. Mike survives, and so does Nick, but Nick plays again despite Mike's pleas not to. Nick pulls the trigger, kills himself. Back in the U.S., the friends have a funeral for Nick, and the film ends with the group back at the local bar singing God Bless America. This is a long film. This is a fucking long movie. It's about three hours, almost exactly, I think, without credits, three hours. Yeah. So decently long, and it breaks almost neatly into three parts. It does, yeah. You've got the first hour, which is the build-up to the wedding and the wedding itself. And then you have, and the hunt, of course. Then you have just a smash cut. They're all sitting in the little cabin that they hunt in. Or I guess they're, you know, it's not actually hunting in the cabin, using it as a jumping-off point. And one of the characters is playing the piano, and they're all just watching him solemnly. And then smash cut to a village being destroyed by helicopters dropping explosives, which I was a little unfamiliar with that process. And Mike waking up from being unconscious and then doing the whole Vietnam thing. And that's roughly an hour of that as well. Then you've got an hour of homecoming, and then the last 10, 15 minutes is the fall of Saigon in 75 Mike looking for Nick in that tragic, tragic end. Yes. So there's some unity in terms of the way it's broken down. But I was looking around, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people were really confused by that first hour because it feels so aimless. And then it just very quickly turns into something else. Well, I think that first hour, the first, I mean, and we can think of this as acts, right? Uh, the first act, I guess, really makes a lot of sense. It sets up these characters uh as as people rather than uh, you know as um soldiers right there as, as civilians i guess uh and so as sort of strange and meandering it f- may have felt at first viewing it makes sense further on i guess well i would agree and disagree i think you're right it establishes them as people with their own problems but a lot of these plot lines go nowhere stan yeah. is just a complete asshole he knocks unconscious his girlfriend because she's being groped by the wedding, wedding singer. singer. Yeah. Steven is the father of a child that's not his, basically. Linda's not Linda. Who is it? What's her name in that? I don't know. I don't know who Steve, which one's Steve. No, Steve, it's his kid, isn't it? No, it isn't. There's a thing right at the end where they're getting into the car. It says just married. And he tells Nick, he tells Christopher Walken's character, you know, I never really did it with it's Angela. He says, I never really did it with Angela. And Walken says, no, that's all right. That's all right. And she's pregnant at the wedding. She's about four oh, months or five Oh, that, okay. I thought that that was just a weird aside about maybe him being a virgin. Yeah, I did too until I remembered, oh, wait, Angela's pregnant. I forgot about that. I didn't even realize she was pregnant. I Again, this film, there's a lot of, the first act is a lot of uh, woman beating, heavy drinking of shitty cheap beer, uh, a lot of steel mill cuts, men being just stupid young men doing mm-hmm. stupid young men things, hunting 
uh, it's a lot there's a lot of bullshit i would say in the first act what i think i really like about this film is it doesn't do a lot of hand-holding in fact it refuses to do it it makes you put together the whole angela steven relationship and you mentioned in your plot synopsis that it's clear that mike is in love with linda but they never out and say that anywhere right so you're forced to kind of put that together on your own and then there's always this kind of doubt in your mind are they? Is he just being really nice? Is there something there? What's going on? But his name is Michael Vronsky because they're all Russians. Yeah, they're all Russian. Ostensibly. Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken. Come on, really? But his last name is Vronsky. Who else do we know literarily whose last name is Vronsky? The character in Anna Karenina, the one who has the affair with Anna Karenina. So oh, a little bit I've of foreshadowing read... there. Yeah, I've never read Anna Karenina, so I didn't catch that. Also, I didn't know anyone's name during the fucking movie, so... <laughs> yeah, Mikey, Nikki, and Stevie. They all call each other by the little diminutives as well, so it gets a little confusing. Right. I do think that in terms of the cinematography, that the, the sort of relationship, or lack thereof, I guess, of uh, Bob De Niro and Linda, which is uh, Meryl Streep, I thought that that was very well done. There's some very good sort of narrative cinematography like you said it never tells you but you know and and actually i kind of had the opposite understanding you did i was never quite sure if she was into him i it always kind of seemed like maybe she might be a little bit but uh, then she wasn't but then maybe she's entertaining it but maybe she's not i'll also say that i really thought most of the way through that first act that first hour that Christopher Walken and Robert De Niro's character were totally into each other. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw sort of like a Ben-Hur moment where they had this homosocial or homoerotic relationship and Linda was just the complicating factor of that. And so they both had these masculine feelings that they were depositing really in Linda when they... You'd see they shared some looks with each other that really made me feel like, no, this is really about these two guys. And I think that really complicates that final act as well. So Mm. I like the ambiguity there. Now that you've pointed that out, that does make a lot of sense. In fact, I'd actually like to take us to my thesis. I'm going to do this first because this movie is so hard to come to grips with, I think, initially, that it could be helpful to give the thesis before we do the pivotal scene. Do it. So I think the deer hunter meaningfully and ambivalently, I think both of those are very important, engages with Vietnam and its aftermath, which is something we'll talk about a little bit later in the three questions. The viewer may be dissatisfied with a lack of closure and maybe even understanding, but this is precisely the point. I think this is the unsettling experience of Vietnam that viewers had not had in 1978. I can get behind that. I mean, I... I am so fresh out of this film. I mean, we're talking in the last hour. And I was left exhausted afterwards. But I do think that this film does have some interesting things to say about both war and America. This movie kind of, for me, enters into that slot. And I'll touch on this more later. But it kind of enters in that slot with The Road. If you've ever seen The Road. I've not seen it, but I've read it adaptation right of Cormac McCarthy's novel The Road I think the film with Viggo Mortensen starring and we'll see a little bit later here on Lord of the Rings coming up in what two films mm-hmm, very soon I think that film is so dark and depressing even more so than the book is that I saw it really appreciated what it did and then almost 
probably could never watch it again. I mean, that's how I feel about this film. There's some good things going on here, but I have no desire to ever... In fact, I think if someone asked me to watch this again, I would outright say no. It doesn't help also that's a very long film. Yes, and as our listeners will know, we just don't want films to be quite this long. Yeah, I mean, I think two hours is kind of the understood time frame of this list. It seems to be the most common let's call it the mode, right? To use mathematical mode, you see, you see two hours, pretty tight two hours almost everywhere. Yes. Pretty rare you see something that's 90 minutes. I think Ben-Hur was three and a half hours, mm-hmm. but it's typical to see about two hours. And so this is a little on the long side. And I think that's part of the grinding process that this film is trying to have on the, on the viewer. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's that's a choice to have this film be that long. In any case, let me take us to our pivotal scene. Throw it at me, Matt. This one comes incredibly late. And I think this is actually where some of this stuff started clicking for me as a film altogether. Like all these, I wasn't having these thoughts about the first act or the second act as I was watching. This is all post facto decompressing, figuring out how I feel about it. And I think this scene in particular helped. So this is where Mike goes back during the fall of Saigon, right? The fall of South Vietnam. He's in Saigon. And he's looking for Nick and he's with Grenda and he sees Nick. Nick comes out of the door and he goes to him, tries to hug him and says, look, it's me. I'm your friend. It's Mike. And Nick's like, Mike who? And it's that moment there where Mike is realizing that though he has found Nick, he really has not found Nick. Like he's never going to bring him back as he promised in the first act because Nick is not the same person. Nick is not there. This is the trauma of their experience in Vietnam. I think this is a really important moment in the film because again, there's no handholding here, but it's letting us know very subtly that Mike has reached a point in which he discovers he can't go back the way things were. Yeah. Let's go ahead and play the clip. Hey. 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 Okay, as you heard, this is a... All, I feel like all the scenes are pretty pretty curse-laden in this film, but yeah. this one is very powerful in terms of gestural. These are, They're within inches of each other's faces during the majority of this scene, so it's very intimate, which also I think plays into my earlier idea of the sort of 
Ben Hur homosocial homoerotic relationship that Mike and Nick have. Yeah. And I also think it does a lot in terms of the development of the character of Mike, where he knows now this isn't going to end any other way than one of us dying because I'm always going to want to bring him home. And it looks clear to me that he doesn't want to. So let's just finish this one way or the other. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, I, th- I think he still has the idea that he can save Nick, right? He's doing the game to kind of put them back in those places they were when they broke out in that spectacular scene of violence where they kill all the guards with the pistol and they steal the guns and they escape, which is actually, I think, really well done, very chaotic. But he's not able to rekindle that feeling of survival or that feeling of intense brotherhood or camaraderie that he had at that moment with Nick. Yeah. And I think that's what retroactively makes this film make sense to me. Well, and, and I mean, I guess the, the, the biggest symbol in this film or, or, or what have you, you know, or theme, I don't know. I guess it's a symbol is Russian roulette, Russian roulette. And this is what this film is known for, right? Is, is this depiction of Russian roulette? Well, I definitely think, that you're right about this being sort of built around the idea of Russian roulette. Roger Ebert called it the organizing principle of the film, which I think I yeah. do agree with. I think there is a lot it stands for in terms of the the thematization of the film, the points that we typically use as a viewer to to come to grips with the film. So what did it what did it do for you in this case? Well, I get the sense in this film that Russian roulette, at least on one level, represents Viet- the, the, the American Vietnam experience writ large, which is to go to Vietnam is to play Russian roulette, right? Um, to be drafted. And I'm not sure if this film makes it clear that they're drafted or not. That was one thing that was a point of confusion for me. They talked about going to Vietnam and making a choice, or it very much seemed like a choice because they're getting a party thrown for them as opposed to this is a terrible thing. They were drafted. So I think it placed the film for me early 60s because they were still making a choice to go over there as opposed to being drafted over there. But it is set in 67. It's supposed to be 67. That's so odd because that's right as things are just about going to be the worst, right? Tet Offensive hasn't happened yet. But, I mean, they were definitely drafting to those, at those points. A couple of the reviews I read said they enlisted, but I think that's a another ambiguity you really can't settle on here. Yeah, and I guess I tend to just assume that they were drafted because I don't want to fucking go to Vietnam. <laughs> um, so I kind of see... I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the nation here uh, with, with understanding, like, what what you know america as nation does to americans not only i mean because this film really doesn't deal so much with americans doing terrible things uh to vietnamese people i mean that happens of course um but it feels different than something like good morning vietnam or i don't know some of these other movies we've seen that that have dealt with vietnam i mean this feels to me a lot like you know i i guess what i'm trying to say is that russian roulette i kind of made sense of it in my head as the idea of being drafted in Vietnam or even just going right is playing Russian roulette. Um, and mm-hmm. you see these characters being forced to play it at times, which uh, that is where I make this sort of draft connection. Like you're forced to, you got to pull the trigger here. You got to find out what's going to happen. Right. Um, but that doesn't, that's not every game they play. Right. Um, and, and of course this film ends with, God bless America, which I see as highly uh, sardonic, 
um, and dark, right? I it's I don't think it's meant to be, you know, it's 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 God bless America and sarcasm, right? That's interesting because I kind of have somewhat of an opposite view. I don't maybe it's not directly opposite, but so for me, Russian roulette is masculinity. It is this performance of manliness because you have Mm -hmm. people willingly doing this at the end in saigon and there's these they're always young men you'll notice always young men doing that and when nick and mike have to play when they're prisoners of war and stevie has to play and he you know averts his own death and they all all the the vietnamese laugh at him because he was unable to to do what he was supposed to do but mike says show him you have balls right and yeah. he yells why he does it. So there's this performance of masculinity. And so I think that complicates the God Bless America at the end, because I think you're right about the jingoism of the United States. Everyone's very happy for these boys to be going over there. Like someone even right. says at one point, kill a few for me, which mm-hmm. is bizarre to hear in 2018. But, you know, it very much was a sentiment mm-hmm. across several wars and probably still will be in the future. But yeah. at the end, I think when they've lost Nick, and they realize, you know, Stevie's not getting his legs back. And he's also very mentally upset, if not mentally damaged by this. Mike yeah, has his own issues up. as well. And I think that God Bless America can be seen as sarcastic. But I think it is also the only refuge they have against this. Yeah. They say, at least we're here. We've made it back. We did something that was valuable. What we did had meaning. And I and I actually am really with you on this masculinity reading. I think that's really astute um, because this film is so f- chock full of a certain kind of masculinity, right? That does come into conflict because at times Bob De Niro and uh, Christopher Walken, I don't remember their fucking names, Mike and Nick, don't always play into that. There are times when, you know, they talk about the beauty of the mountains and stuff, which sort of plays a little anti uh you know pennsylvania steelworking men the literal hell depicted in that steel mill that smelting facility right yeah and that's what the film opens with right so what that tells us about how great this is going to be a fun ride right yeah i think that there is and and that's like we see the the uh what is it's fredo from the godfather what's that guy's name his hairline is at, at the back of his neck (laughs) what is his name whatever that guy's name is uh he's a good actor and actually i think he was dating meryl streep at the time he was dating meryl streep at the time (laughs) you should also yeah that's kind of confusing but we should also mention that all of his scenes were filmed first because he was currently dying of bone cancer i thought it was i thought it was lung cancer i heard bone some kind of cancer yeah he's dying he of died cancer, before the completion of it never saw the end of the film oh geez and of course several people wanted to fire him the director's like can't do it he looks perfect in the part he's actually bonded with these other men in these these roles we're gonna see it through he wanted to see it through yeah and i think his character is important to your masculinity reading right that because he's the one who carries around that little pistol and mm-hmm. beats you know he clocks that girlfriend uh, and he's always pulling his gun and he's always doing all this shit. Um, and by the end, Bob De Niro, you know, he, he pulls that gun on his friend at the hunting lot or the hunting cabin and Bob De Niro like freaks out on him. And he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And the guy's like, oh, it wasn't loaded. And Bob De Niro lifts it up in the air and pulls the trigger. And of course it was loaded. Right. right. He says, you know, it, so I think there's a, there is a bit of a condemnation of this sort of pompadour, 
you know, puffed toxic up Toxic masculinity just in general, right? Yeah, toxic masculinity. I mean, that's what's happening here. And so to see that transition through the film, I mean, this it is talking a lot about masculinity. Um, and, and, of course, by the end of the film, we get men crying. Um, you know, we get these sort of broken men uh, versus the, the young, virile, uh, stupid boys that they really kind of are at the film's open. Yeah, and I think that's why we're fixed firmly in Hemingway territory here, because we mm-hmm. are dealing with nature and how it relates or correlates or fails to correlate with masculinity, different mm-hmm. performances of masculinity, successes and failures of men going to war, coming back from war. It's like the Nick Adams cycle of stories. I don't know Nick Adams. He was a friend of mine in high school. That's <laughs> Nick Adams I know. <laughs> Ethan, why don't we turn to our three questions? Yes, please. Because we have said a lot about these already, but I think it's nice to put these in their own tidy boxes. So we'll start with that first question. And do we care about this film? I guess. I don't want to care about this film because I enjoyed none of it. Well, I don't think you're supposed to enjoy it, right? I think that's part of the film's idea of itself is that you have to witness this and witnessing is often painful. Yeah, no, definitely. So I think as a... I don't know. At the same time, there are there are just so many Vietnam. I don't know. I'm war movied out at this point, which I know is sure. probably it's a bad thing when we're not even halfway through because there are a lot more to come. I know, and well, and also we've done quite a few. I know that you. I mean, you study this sort of stuff, yeah. so we've done a lot of war or war adjacent movies, and uh, you know, the Vietnam War is not a good war. It just is not. What a hot take by Ethan Knight. <laughs> right. Um, and so to watch this, uh, to see another, uh, especially coming off of MASH, which uh, tries to, you know, take a, a, a kind of darkly light tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an oxymoron. But, you know, it, 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 ha- it tries to have as much fun as I guess you can have with also saying this is all fucked up. Um, to go from that to this, I mean, this is a, this movie's a bummer, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I agree with what you're saying. I'm not war movied out because maybe my tolerance is probably a little bit higher, but I think there are is. times after doing a bunch of courses and research on trauma that you have to sit for a month and say, I don't want to deal anything with this stuff because you, your mind isn't made for that, right? Your will yeah. is not bent to do something like that. It's taxing. I mean, it is taxing to, to as you put it, witness this stuff, right? Um, Whether you're reading it or watching it. So all of that to say, do we care about this film? I I guess, I guess I do, but I will log it in my long list of texts, whether they be film or otherwise uh, that, you know, talk about how terrible and awful the Vietnam war is. Sure. You know, thank God I was not around for that shit. Because the Vietnam War fucked people up. Hot take yet again. <laughs> yeah, I, I, every war does. This one, no less so. But I think the fact this is also tied up with, in some ways, the loss of American innocence. Because we don't see ourselves as the good guys. We can't trust our own government. They're watching us. They're making all these decisions without us. And it suddenly becomes mm-hmm. the curtain has been pulled back on this thing we call democracy. And it's not quite working the way we thought it would. Mm-hmm. But... I really do like this film. I do care about it. It won five Academy Awards. I know Christopher yes. Walken won Best Supporting Actor, 
De Niro was nominated, didn't win. I know Streep was nominated. I'm not sure if she won or not, but it won sound and I think concept or design. And of course, best, best picture. Just as you've pointed out our big stars here. First of all, Meryl Streep has not aged a day. No, she hasn't. She, I mean. Ageless wonder. She maybe look. I mean, okay. I guess I'll take that back. She maybe looks like maybe ten years older than she is in this film. I can't believe it. Um, we can't say the same for Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken looks like he's a weird. You know, I've I've never seen him as a young young man like this in a film. I didn't recognize him at first. Yeah, he's a weird looking dude. I couldn't tell if I thought that he was good looking or if I didn't. I was also doing that calculus during the yeah. film as well. Because the film wants to play him as attractive, but it was somewhat of an ask. Yeah, at times I was like, I can get behind him being a good-looking dude. And other times I was like, he looks like a fucking weirdo. Um, Bob De Niro, too, is is another one that, God, he looks ancient now. He looks like a 12-year-old in this film. Yeah. Compared to how he is. Anyway, that's really neither here nor there. There wasn't a good place for it, but I just wanted to throw that in. I'll also say that this film is regarded as the first film to contend with Vietnam. Like, straight up, we are dealing with Vietnam. It's not MASH, who's using Korea to kind of talk about Vietnam. And there was, like, a really jingoistic film before this that was very pro-war, but no blood. But this actually takes the aftermath of Vietnam and says something significant, I believe, about it. So I think that's one of the major reasons we have to care about this. Well, and it's 78. And I mean, you know, Saigon fell in 75. I mean, this is fresh Mm -hmm. off of it. And it's not a, it's not a, like you said, it's not a jingoistic or a good take. America's not necessarily the good guy coming out of here. Um, it, It, You know, so I think that that, yeah, I guess if we put it in that context, definitely. So let's go to our second question. And what do we owe to this film? Well, Russian roulette. I mean, the idea of Russian roulette, I think that, you know, really comes out of this because that's that's, you know, the the primary symbol here. The first popular depiction of Russian roulette in the film for us was this film. And um, yeah, it gives me some context for that uh, sunny in Philadelphia scene with Danny DeVito doing the Russian roulette in the back room of the bar. Have you ever seen that? I I've I don't watch Always Sunny. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's a pretty pretty popular scene, and it's 100% ripped from this film. And I never knew that. So when I saw the red bandana, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is where this comes from. Well, and you know, I wonder if Christopher Walken's casting in Pulp Fiction uh, has something vaguely to do with this film. Tarantino certainly saw this film. Um, and so, I mean, it's kind of complicated by the fact that his character doesn't make it out at the end. Mm-hmm. When I was watching a lot of this, I w- really was like, if this motherfucker makes it out of this movie, Tarantino, because, you know, Tarantino plays fast and loose with all sorts of genres, characters, all sorts of things like that. So I just kind of love the idea that maybe, you know, the... uh well, I guess it's Korea in Pulp Fiction that he comes back from. It doesn't matter. I think that that has something to do with it. Can you remind me where Christopher Walken was in that movie? I completely forgotten. Christopher Walken is the character um, that comes in to Butch's uh, flashback and tells him about how when he was oh in the my POW gosh camp- okay yes that was our pivotal scene yes and I and I saved it 
in my ass. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Wow. How can I forget that? Yeah. So I think that that may, you know, I it would seem, it just is. You can't. Tarantino saw this movie, and it's it's just like him to cast a you know walk in in a in a role that is vaguely re- reminiscent of uh, something he's done before. Sure. I'll also say the film lineage that the deer hunter becomes the originator of for lack of a better term you have platoon very obviously right it's a mm-hmm. movie we've already covered on this podcast in fact the way platoon is done without the glorification of violence and the problemization of the vietnam war is directly linked to this film i think that's pretty well documented mm-hmm. in fact also saving private ryan does a very similar mm-hmm. thing of course with world war ii rather than vietnam but that too with spielberg takes a different take on America's just war, right? To, to put it strongly. We also have a real world implication of this. The Vietnam veteran memorial, the guy who actually designed that, who had the idea to do it, was inspired by this film. He said it was this film that convinced him or made him decide or you know, spawn the idea to do it. Yeah. So I think we owe this movie a great deal. And I think it's very, very important film, as we've, we stated above. Though that doesn't mean it's a pleasant one by any stretch. Mm-hmm. So, Ethan, our final question is, does this film hold up? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I think it does the same shit it did in the, in 1978 that it does today. I, I, I mean, it's long. We've taken issue with that before, but I think that's part of the point. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know... I can't imagine a 1978 audience having that much of a different reaction to the way I had to this other than that. It was, it probably was worse in 1978. Yeah. Because 78, I think is when the war actually ended, right? When the the North Vietnamese actually take over South Vietnam officially when this, you know, the actual paper surrender is done. Also the year my parents graduated college. Well, there you go. So momentous year for many, many things. (laughs) But I would say that you're absolutely on the money with this holding up in terms of its intent. I think visually some things are maybe not great. I think Nero's beard is just terrible. I just wanted to say that. It's not good. I don't know why he has that. I don't know why when he gets to go back as a soldier in 1975, which as an aside, yes, I am aware that he has far too many medals and his rank is far too high for him being over there for nine months, right? One tour of duty. At one point, I think he's got six stripes on his lapel. And one of the notes I read said, you get one of those for every three years of service. So he's like a decorated general at this point and he's done one tour. It's also strange how he ends up in a different unit than his other friends and Nick went AWOL, which means he wasn't done with his tour, but Mike was. So Mike was in that gambling den and was allowed to be. It was There's some fogginess there. So yeah. that's neither here nor there. But I also think the blood effects are really, really campy here. Someone shoots himself yeah, in the head and blood spurts right. out the entry wound. And I don't know a whole lot about entry wounds, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that that would not be the case. Uh, yeah, I think it, it. You know, it's that is a little campy. It's a little cheesy. Uh, however, the emotion in those scenes, oh, I just don't want it. 
oh, oh, I just, oh, I can't say any more about it. <laughs> One final thing I'll say about it holding up, because I agree with you thematically holds up. Visually, I think we're still pretty good. I think the sound, there's a lot of ADR, and ADR just really mm. is a personal pet peeve of mine, I think, when it's not done super well. And there are also multiple audio sources at the wedding, mm. especially. And of course, that's because there's so much noise going on that they're having to take from different mics and you can just hear the unevenness in places, which is a little grating. I just kind of assumed, I mean, there was so much in this movie that I just couldn't understand what they were saying. And I kind of assumed sometimes they're speaking, I guess, Russian. Yes. Sometimes, you know, I, I guess that Grinda is sometimes speaking maybe French. It's French. Yeah. I don't fucking know. I just kind of assumed that I wasn't really supposed to hear and understand every word that came in this thing and i just kind of rolled with it and sure. in fact honestly i it was a nice little break not to have to listen to whatever toxic <laughs> shit was coming out of their mouths so i was kind of thankful for that i think maybe some of the script scripted dialogue doesn't hold up super well at times it feels like someone told a non-english speaker to write the script in their own language and then mm, yeah. the script writer translated it into English without knowing the language because you get these really stilted lines and it feels like, I don't know, something like um, Twin Peaks or something at some points. So you're like, what is happening? Am I, am I supposed to feel very off kilter with the way this dialogue is going? Yeah, I guess I just sort of chalked that up to the feel of the film. Yeah, and it could be definitely could be intentional. But these are just the small things that stuck out to me. Although I still think I have an overwhelmingly positive reaction to this film, what it's trying to do. Yeah. Well, that's our time, Ethan. We made it through. We've Ugh. reached the end. And what we get to do next time is we get to go back to Vietnam. <laughs> what are we doing next time? We are doing Taxi Driver. Oh, my God. Yes. Another De Niro film. De Niro and the aftermath of Vietnam. So we'll return to some of the same themes. Of course, we'll have a nice intervening Patreon film. Let's get a fucking comedy in here. Something. <laughs> Man. Well, with those high hopes and high spirits, <laughs> I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there, of course, will be spoilers. Can you hold on to this little revolver for me for a second, Matt? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll grab it. Here we could, you, could you click that for me? Click. Spoilers! <laughs> There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.